So yeah, we carry on this uh, this the series, and as, as I said, in particular, uh, I want us to to consider the subject of evangelism, and um, because I think um, Jonah has important things to say to that, I think it's evident that at some level Jonah is involved in evangelistic endeavor here. Um, not not saying that there's a total correspondence between um, that every yeah between how Jonah's you know, Jonah's ministry and, and what, if you want, the New Testament saying is called to practice, and we acknowledge that there are differences there and maybe areas, but there are things about how God commissions Jonah that I think is, is are very important for, for us to learn um, as we seek to be a faithful evangelists ourselves. Um, one of the things I said last week, and so... Um, the, the, the title of this series is Soul Winner, Lessons from the Book of Jonah for Evangelism, but the soul winner. And I said last week that um, one thing we learned from Jonah is actually the, 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 the ultimate soul winner is God himself. And that to be, um, to be a soul winner is ultimately for us um, to, to enter into that reality, that God is a soul winner, uh, and to be lost in that and, and so become uh, faithful soul winners are ourselves. And, and that's the beauty of, of the book of Jonah is that it, it shows us, uh, it, it leads us back to God and, 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 and reminds us that it is God who has commissioned us to evangelize. And we, 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 place, we should place importance uh, on evangelism and so on, but, but only because God has commanded us to, to, to do so. But that being said, you know, the, 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 it seems to me that even the nature of just the gospel itself means that were there no explicit command to evangelize even. But there, there are, of course, you know, as I said, the Great Commission to the church, and the reason why we must place uh, supreme importance on evangelizing is that, is that that's those the words that our, our Lord spoke to his church uh, before he ascended. He, he says he, he's clearly coming back for a church who's obeying the Great Commission. Um, but, and so, yes, we, 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 we evangelize in response to an explicit command of the Lord, uh, but even if there wasn't a command in the Bible to say, you go and evangelize, it would seem to me that just the intrinsic nature of, of, of what the gospel is and, and the story the Bible tells of, the, of redemption would always lend itself to evangelizing anyway. You know, you think about the fact that God is our creator and, and he loves his world. Um, and so that if God loves the world, the message of, of Christianity, which, which is a message about that, was always bound to be a message not just for some small group of people in, a, in, in, in an isolated space, right? It's something Jonah needs to appreciate more and more, that the message of the gospel is not just for Israel. It's for those who might even be for, the, for, the, for those who might be the enemies of God, right? The message of, of, of repentance, the message of a restored relationship for God, with, with God is not just for one part of the world, it's for the whole world. And so that sort of unity, the, the, the universal nature of the gospel is it's always going to mean that there would always be an evangelistic, if you want, feel to our faith. Or, or think of the effect that the gospel has on people. Let's say there's no command for you to go and evangelize, but just the effect that the gospel is meant to have on your life. The Bible says you're a new creature, but you're, you're a new creation living amongst the old creation. And so just the way your life goes is bound to necessitate that you're involved in some kind of evangelistic endeavor. Because people are bound to ask you, why is it that you, you, you believe the way you do and the way you think the way you do? And again, the nature of Christianity just lends itself to being uh, evangelistic. Or, or you think of the fact that we're to, to love God and what it means to love God is to declare his glory and declare his praise. Peter tells us that in 1 Peter 2 that... Um, God has, has called us that we, we're, we're God's chosen people to declare his excellencies. Well, that's what it is to be saved, is to love the Lord. And so we're bound to want to publish his, his, his greatness. Again, Christianity lends itself to uh, just, it is always bound to be evangelistic. We're always meant to be this um, outreaching aspect to Christianity. Or, or love for neighbor. If you're meant to, the Bible says that the two great commandments are to love the Lord and, and then to, to love God and to love your, your neighbor, uh, to love your fellow man. And if that's the case, then 
that means you should care for your fellow man. Well, I don't think there's much that can be more important than caring about the eternal destiny of your neighbor. And if it's true that Christianity is meant to be about love for neighbor, then it's bound to be a, a faith that has to be evangelized. Well, that being, that being said, we have to be clear that the reason, the rationale, the commission for evangelism is based on the commandment of God's word, right? It's not actually, it's not simply that there is a logical, and as I say, there is almost a, a logical necessity based on what we believe about the gospel and how the gospel affects people for evangelism. But that's not, of course, what evangelism is based on. It's based on God's word. We evangelize because God has told us to. We evangelize because we understand that evangelism is the way that God has designed to see um, his elect who are spread right across the world come, uh, come, come into his, his eternal kingdom. And so that's why we we, we evangelize. And because that's the case, what's important is for us to go, God, go back to God's word um, and be recommissioned, if you want, from God's word. Learn from God's word. Make sure that our evangel- evangelism is rooted in God's word. Because that probably is the, the place where um, our, 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 our evangelism goes awry is because we, 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 we ignore what God's word has said, forgetting that it's God who has commissioned the church. Jesus Christ says we evangelize as he has commanded us. Um, so that's what we're gonna, we were doing in the book of Jonah. And this morning, I want to come close to suggesting a biblical method for evangelism. Uh, obviously, chapter 2 is a chapter where we see Jonah actually be recommissioned and go back to Nineveh and fulfill the first commandment that we saw him obey in, the, in chapter, disobey, sorry, in chapter one. And so this morning, I, I want to suggest that as we look at Jonah's actions, as we look at how, Jonah respo- how God sends him and how Jonah responds, we, we, we possibly have some sort of, we, we have something of a method here that we can say, this is how we should be directed to evangelize. There's a, there's a method here. Um, because actually, when it comes to evangelism, at least amongst Christians, I, I think that many of the debates and many of the conversations and sometimes many of the obstacles that Christians face when it comes to evangelizing have a lot to do with what methods we use and whether a, a particular method is valid or invalid and so on. A lot of the conversation is, is had there. And, um, and in one sense, rightly so. If we believe that God has commissioned the church to evangelize, then it's only right that we take the, the way we do these things seriously. But I think, and again, one of the big issues for the church is our failure to go back to the Bible and ask if there's a method. What, what, what method does the Bible outline for us? And I think when we ask it that way, what we probably find is the, the, the Bible gives us an answer, probably just not the way we want to hear, not just, just not the answer we want. Right, that the Bible does give us an answer, a method, but maybe not not in the way that we want it to. Uh, I don't think the Bible, the scriptures don't necessarily tell us every last detail of how the method for evangelism should be applied. In general, there's they're broad truths, but they're foundational truths. They're truths that the Bible wants us, truths that the Bible wants us, I think, to 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 go deep into, and from them, when we've really appreciated the method that the Bible places before us, and we go deep into it, then we begin to spring out with biblical methods. Then we, we, whatever practical, if you want, methods we have for evangelism will be based on us questioning whether they're rooted in what the Bible says is essential uh, as far as a method for evangelism is concerned. So I think the question about a method for evangelism is answered in the Bible in similar ways to how the question you might ask that same question for prayer. What is the method for prayer? Um, I think it's Matthew Henry who has a, has a book uh, called A Method for Prayer. And if you think of it, the closest we come perhaps in the Bible to a method for prayer is, is the Lord's Prayer. Because at least in the book of Luke, the Bible is explicit that the Lord says those words 
perhaps on a different occasion, if it's on a different occasion, he says those words also in response to the disciples' request to be taught how to pray. Teach us how to pray. And the words, Christ doesn't say, oh, there's no method for prayer. I can't teach you how to pray. He responds by, by telling them how to pray. This is how you should pray. But when he tells them how we should, they should pray, he doesn't quite say, pray three times a day like Daniel did. Or pray in the, in the night like I do. Or pray on your knees. Or pray with your head lifted. He doesn't do that. Gives them these broad, essential truths that we've come to call the Lord's Prayer. And tells them to soak themselves, as it were, in, in this method. He, he doesn't tell them to pray those exact words, but to pray in this way. Pray constrained by these realities. And there's an intrinsic method in the Lord's Prayer that we can appreciate and remind ourselves what, 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 what genuine prayer should look like. I think the same thing is, is happening, happens with evangelism in the Bible. It doesn't quite tell us you have to use tracts or you need to, you can't, you know, it should be, it has to be online or um, you should have a gospel service or it doesn't, not necessarily, but it gives us certain broad truths, broad ideas that are vital to the method for evangelism because they're God's method, which if we take it, the, them into consideration, both for corporate and personal evangelism, will begin to constrain and dictate what methods we use. And we say, okay, this method is viable or this method is not viable. And so methods become dispensable. Methods can be dispensable. What is not dispensable is the essence, the biblical essence of evangelism that must kind of constrain, that must control the, the practical aspect of evangelism. So I'm saying then when Christians are always asking, what's the, practice, what's the best practice of evangelism? And that's not a bad question, that there's almost a prior question that must happen before that, which is to say, what are the biblical methods that we have and then from there, when we've come to a conclusion there, we can start to think of, um, of the best practices and what practices are, 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 are acceptable or not. And so to do that, to, to look at a method, I say let's look at how Jonah was commissioned to evangelize to, um, to the people of, of Nineveh. And I think that if we look at Jonah's story, look at the book of Jonah, we, we can see some of what the Bible emphasizes as far as when um, the scriptures teach us what it's like to be a faithful evangelist and how God would want us to evangelize. At the end of the day, we cannot forget this is God's work. This is God's work. And he, he, he's the one who commissions his people. Um, he, he's the one who um, determines how the church evangelizes and, 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 and if the church is evangelizing faithfully or not. And to do this then from this, this chapter, chapter 3, as I told you, as I said uh, briefly, um, Jonah chapter 3 is, is where we read about Jonah's being recommissioned. So he's been, God has found him. Um, he tried to hide from the Lord, but of course, he, could, he should have read David's psalm in uh, Psalm 139 and realized that was not possible. Um, so God has found him. Um, God has found him in ways that only God can find him by controlling the seas and then by controlling uh, fish, controlling all of creation to remind Jonah who's in control. And God has spared him and been merciful to him. Um, and, and now God says to, God sends Jonah again. Verse, verse one says that the Lord, the words, God's word came to Jonah a second time um, saying, now you go and do this now. And we, we shouldn't, we shouldn't too uh, quickly brush over the, the weightiness of that. God didn't need to recommission Jonah a second time. We know that. He didn't have to send Jonah a second time. That's an act of grace and mercy towards the Lord, uh, towards Jonah, sorry. Um, and um, we, we, should, we, should, we should learn from that as well. Um, that when, when, if the Lord is in this sermon, for example, calling us to be faithful evangelists again, he doesn't need to do that. He doesn't need us. It's a gracious call for us to even have the opportunity to repent and to renew our vigor in this endeavor. Uh, but God does call Jonah again because God is gracious uh, to his people. He tells jo Jonah, go back to Nineveh. And jo Jonah goes this time. There's obedience here. He obeys the Lord. He preaches the word of the Lord. I think a lot of people, people sometimes suggest that maybe Jonah left things out. I don't, not, not convinced that there's any reason to, to think that that's what happened. Uh, the book of Jonah doesn't say that. 
Um, I think Jonah preached what he was told to preach. Uh, that, that seems to be the, the, the emphasis of, of Jonah. The Bible says, God said to him, preach exactly what I tell you to preach. And Jonah seems to recount that that's exactly what Jonah did. Um, preaches this message, and there's a great move of the Spirit in Nineveh. The people of Nineveh repent, or they, at least they're sorrowful. They're, they're sorrowful for their sin, and God is compassionate towards them. Right, the, the kind of thing that we, we think is a great, that would be a great evangelistic service, right? Where the, a sermon is preached, folks are convicted, and there's conversion. People come back to the Lord. So that's, that's the brief, very, very clear uh, picture of what happens in Jonah chapter 3. And looking at that passage, there's actually three major movements. And from those three major movements in Jonah chapter 3, I want to... Um, Make my, my give you some yeah, headings for, for today's sermon. And the three major movements are the first movement of God calling Jonah, recommissioning him, telling him to go again. Um, sec- that's the first movement. Second major movement is Jonah actually going and preaching and proclaiming uh, these words to the Ninevites. 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then the third movement is essentially um, the, the response of the Ninevites and, and God's mercy towards the Ninevites, they respond with um, they respond with, uh, with with contriteness and brokenness, and, and God uh, is 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 merciful uh, towards them. God is merciful towards the Ninevites. So those are the three major movements, and those will form my headings for what I think are the vital lessons we can learn from for evangel- evangelizing from this passage, and especially as applies to the way we evangelize and what we, what we take as vital when we evangelize. Um, three things to draw your attention to. First of all, that God uses people. He uses men. He uses women. He uses people um, to accomplish this task. That's the first method. That's the first crucial thing to, it seems obvious, but the first crucial thing to bear in mind, I think, is that God uses us. God uses men and women. He, he so how God uses. Second thing is that God uses a particular message, not just a messenger, but a message. He, he uses people, but he also tells people what to say. He uses a particular... Um, so the method for evangelism for us there would be to stick to the message that God gives. And, and thirdly, um, as far as the, the third thing that is, is vital for evangelizing and a method for evangelizing as is displayed here is is, is, is that God's grace is what seals evangelizing. So God's grace in evangelizing, God's, God's grace itself must be the church's, if you want, method, a reliance on God's grace in the work of evangelizing. So those three things. Uh, firstly then, I want you to see that God uses people, a reminder, uh, a reminder to ourselves, and as I, as I elaborate upon this, I hope you appreciate why it's, it's important for us to, 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 to sense this. Uh, but, but look how this is brought out in the book of Jonah. Now, prior to this chapter, the one thing, and I said this in the sermon last week, the one thing that we have truly seen, the one thing that's become apparent for us from the book of Jonah is the absolute sovereignty of God. The God we see in Jonah, and this is a God of the whole Bible, but sometimes perhaps certain aspects of God's character are emphasized for us to see because we can't take it all in at once, and we, we can't comprehend the, the mystery of the divine. But, but, but so, so, in, so certain passages might, might have a particular emphasis. I think it, it might be fair to say, however, though, that almost every, um, every book of the Bible displays God as sovereign. So not disputing that. But there's an emphatic way in which this is done in the first, in the opening chapters of Jonah. This God is sovereign over everything. You can't run from him, Jonah. He's sovereign over the seas. He's sovereign over the storms and over the waves. He's sovereign over the fishes, the animals, animals, um, both on land and in the sea. He's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign even over the nations. We know that because from nowhere he, he, he calls this prophet in Palestine and says, you need to go to Nineveh causes this prophet in, in literal Israel and says, you need to go to Nineveh and tell them, I'm not happy with the way they've been living. Tell them, it's t- they have to, I- I'm calling them to answer to me. He's the God to whom all the nations answer, not just Israel, even Nineveh. His dominion, and, and, and maybe Jonah needed to appreciate this a bit more, his dominion is not just Israel. 
His dominion is the world. I think for Jonah, what he didn't appreciate was that very often, even towards the rest of the world, that dominion is a dominion of love, even towards his enemies. But anyhow, this God is sovereign. The fact is, he doesn't need Jonah. Right? He doesn't need Jonah to be able to communicate. He can, he can reveal himself. Right? He doesn't say a word to the sailors in chapter 1 who, however, sense his presence and eventually start to worship. And yet, he still goes through all this trouble seeking Jonah over land and sea to get Jonah to speak to the Ninevites. God uses people. He doesn't use angels. He, it's not dreams and visions. It's us. Paul says they, they won't hear without a preacher. We must take this so serious. We, we, we must not be careless and in the name of believing the sovereignty of God say that if, if no one goes there, if there's no ministry there, God can just do it. Of course he can, but he uses people. That's how he's designed it to be. That's the, in one sense, you say, why does, he, why does he use people? All we can say in one sense is, is that because he is he, he, he's sovereign. And in his sovereign wisdom, he has chosen that this would be the best way to display the wonder, the, the, the glory of his son, will be to use people like us, to use people who, have, who he has brought into his kingdom, to use his, his servants to go and communicate the gospel to others. I mean, we can, we can speculate about other reasons. I mean, for, for one, we have seen what it's like for God to come down and speak to people. I mean, the people of Israel saw just something of his glory, as it were, at Sinai. God came down, and you have to say, even, even with, the, with, the, with, the, with the wonder that Sinai was, and with the, the signs, and the, 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 the nature of what happened at Sinai, that even that was only a veiled appearance of God, and yet the people said, we don't want to hear from you. Don't, we don't want God to speak to us. You speak to us, Moses. And so, so if God was going around speaking to people about their sins, there wouldn't be many people left. We can't stand the presence of the holy God. And so in one sense, it's, it's God's grace that he has to condescend. Even when, he's, when the Lord's going to come into the world to dwell among us, he condescends and takes on human flesh. Another reason is because surely God, is, God delights in his power being manifest in our weakness. He, he, he wants to use weak, frail humanity to do great works. It's the example of a reluctant prophet like Jonah, reluctantly preaching and still converting a city that is over and over again referred to as great, the great city. So that there's no doubt in our minds when we read Jonah that the one who is at the heart of the revival, if you want, the awakening that happens in Nineveh is God, not Jonah, because Jonah's weakness is manifest which is why conversion in the church happens through what Paul calls the foolishness of preaching. Not through sword, not through you know, violence and constraint, not through bribery, but through the message of the gospel because its foolishness, its weakness is apparent, but in it, it confounds the power of the world. That's why God wants to use mortals because it will redound to his glory as he reveals that he's that he's able to demonstrate his strength, his power, even in, the, in, in our weakness. So the God for whom all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket still uses men. And so the point I want to stress for you there, though, is that we must remember that it's we who must go. We are the ones who have been commissioned to go and share the truth with others. It's us. It's not just even as simply as saying, I'm just going to pray for you to be saved. Of course you should pray to be saved. I'm going to say that in a second. We should pray for each other to be saved. But we must not forget that that person is not going to hear the gospel unless someone speaks the gospel to them. People are not going to hear the gospel unless human beings tell them. So, so, so what it means is we must, we must acknowledge our involvement in all of this. Right? And, and, and it's too easy for churches who are acquainted with the glorious, with glorious doctrines like God's sovereignty and who recognize 
God's kingship over the world, to be careless about the role we play, what you might call the human responsibility in evangelizing. We must recognize that. So we can't pat ourselves on the back if we have no strategy whatsoever for evangelizing. We, we, we can't say, well, we, we, we're, not, we're not thinking through how best to evangelize. We're not thinking about the best means that are available to us, but we are praying a lot about it. You know, we, we are thinking a lot about it. We're trusting, we're, we're breaking it down in our Bible study. No, it's us that must go. We must be involved in the work. There's no way around it. God uses us. He uses people. He's not sending angels, he's sending men. Sending people. And, and, and what that means as well is then, it brings into the fore, does it not, the, the kind of lives we have to live. You see, very often, an obstacle to proclaiming the gospel to others is the messenger himself. I, listen, I absolutely con- concede that the message is way more important than the messenger. No shadow of a doubt. We, we, this is an ex- a, a, a wonderful example here because we have a reluctant messenger in Jonah. And yet, look at what his message does. Because the message is greater than Jonah. But if, we're, if we take seriously the reality that this is man-to-man conversation, person-to-person conversation, then surely we cannot deny the influence, the effect that our personhood has on the message. That in one sense, the more we appreciate the gravity, the weightiness of the message, will desire even more and more to be clean vessels. We will always be but jars of clay. We will always be unworthy of delivering such a message. But we should be increasingly trying to clean this vessel. We, should, we, 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 we shouldn't want this, we shouldn't want our lives to be a hindrance to the message going forth. This is a biblical principle, right? It's a biblical principle. The, 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 the apostles in the New Testament constantly warns, warns Christians, the way you live can, if you want, discredit the gospel. Not that the gospel, there's any way you can actually intrinsically discredit the gospel. The gospel will always be divine. The gospel will always be powerful. The gospel will always be pure, always be true. But you can discredit it in the eyes of others because people, it's people, we're human. And so we must be conscious of that. We must be careful of our witness, as we call it, to unbelievers. Right? We must, we must, we must remember, remember that if we, if we live in such a way, we must live in such, in such ways that beautify, makes the gospel true, makes the gospel appealing, if you want, so that there can be avenue to share the gospel with others. It does matter how we respond, how we, I think that must be, but that, that's also one of the reasons, if I, I know it's one of the reasons, why, 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 why the, 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 the Christian approach to, to life is, is somewhat upside down, that is, we, the way the Bible tells us to deal with injustice, the call to meekness, the reason there is because of our witness. A, a sensitivity to God's call, right? We, we, I, countless times we say this to ourselves, don't we? That one of the things that hinders us sometimes from, from sharing the gospel is the state of our hearts. I, I, I don't feel in a place to share the gospel. Now, I almost always um, tell people who say that to me, or tell myself when I'm in that position, the message is greater than you. Share that message anyway. But that's not to say that your original premise doesn't have some warrant. It does. If there's no sensitivity to the things of God, if, when, when we're feeling cold, when we're not walking faithfully with the Lord, there's also no desire to share the truth. It's very hard for me, if I'm involved in fraudulent business with unbelievers, to try and share the gospel with them. How are they going to believe that I believe, how are they going to believe that I really believe this gospel and that this gospel can do anything to change the heart when my heart is, is just like theirs? There's no change, no transformation. God uses us. It's us he uses. Let's not pretend like the vessel doesn't matter. It does. It does because it's the vessels that God has chosen to use. And also then, it means that we must be then, we must be thinking of people as well when we evangelize. So yes, 
You might say the foremost reason for evangelizing is, is God and thinking of God, but it's also people. The, the, God has sent us to speak to other people. God uses men to speak because that's, that's, that's how people can understand. People couldn't withstand the presence of angels. And what that means for us is thinking through the, the way we evangelize, the communication that we use, and making sure that we think of the best ways, being zealous to make sure that we, we can explore the right methods because we want to reach, reach men, want to reach people. And lastly, just to say that it is to us that this great task has been handed. If, if, if God uses people, God uses human beings, and the human beings he uses, of course, are his church, let's not forget that God has been pleased to give this great task. And I think for many of us as Christians, what we need, our hearts are so cold to, or, or insensitive to the, the greatness of this task. You know, it's, you, you, you might say as a Christian that you, this, is, this is why you live. Amongst many, you know, amongst many other ways you might phrase that, your purpose on this earth includes evangelizing because of the, the unique way in which it displays the glory of God. How many of us, in considering our goals or visions or plans for this year, were minded to consider the implications of the way we live for the lost? How many of us weighed up whatever area of life it is you were really concerned to make improvement on and said, how is this going to affect the way I, I bear witness of Christ to others? How is this going to lead to more avenue for that? Where, how many of us did that? Isn't it because we've, we've forgotten our purpose for being here? God calls us, he uses men, and there's nothing greater that we can be found doing while we're here on this earth, right? The world is going to lie to us that we can, you know, it's, it's money or it's fame or it's, it's um, whatever it is. No, there's nothing greater we can be found doing than bearing witness to Christ. So the first thing is to say that God uses man. He doesn't need to use people, but he uses people. Uses human beings just like you and I, weak as we are, it's who we use it. We must never forget that we have a great commission. So that's God's first thing about God's method. Second thing to say about God's method is that He gives a message. God gives His own message. There's a message that God uses for evangelism. Right? So verse in, in, in chapter three, we're told quite clearly, verse two of chapter three, that God's Verse 1 already tells us that God's word comes. So God commissions him. But verse 2 tells us that God says to, 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 to Jonah to preach what I'm going to tell you to preach. The message I give you. There's no opportunity, no room for ingenuity, for flexibility, for adjusting, for improving. You preach what I tell you to preach. My message now, we, we must appreciate that God already has in mind what he wants to do with this city, what's going to happen in this city. God's desire, quite clearly, when we read the book of Jonah, God's desire in this instance with Jonah, with Nineveh, is to display his compassion for sinners. And one of the vital ways that's going to happen is if Jonah preaches what he is told to preach. And I think the application for us there is that we, to evangelize, is to proclaim a certain message. I don't think the church has always appreciated this. I think it might seem obvious, but I don't think the church has always appreciated that. That what we must be concerned to do, the most important thing about our method, is that we have a particular message and nothing else. We don't want to deviate to the left or the right from this message. We have a particular message that we want to put out there, and that is what evangelism is. That's what evangelism is, to preach a particular message. You think of the fact that for a while, I don't know if it's still the case, but so many Christians were acceding to this, I, I don't know who actually who phrased it, but there's a quote that says, you preach the gospel at all times, but use words if necessary. That is, 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 is heresy, it's a lie. But so many of us were, maybe you heard me say that now and thought, oh, that sounds good. It's not true. We can't decide how best to evangelize. God tells us how to evangelize. You can't preach the gospel without words when the gospel is a message, 
Now, of course, as I said, you can, you can prepare the ground for someone to hear the gospel. You can, you, can, you can make sinners willing to hear the gospel, as it were, because of how you live. But that's not what it is to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel is to deliver a certain message. Just, just, as, just as, sorry, to evangelize. To evangelize is to deliver a certain message. Just as Jonah was sent out with a message, so we are sent out with a message. That's why Paul says he'd preach Christ. Right? Uh, that's, why, that's, why, that's, why, that's why Jesus Christ says, you, you, you disciple these nations by teaching them whatever I've commanded you. So the, the vital thing for the church is to lay hold convincingly of what this message is, to understand it, to know it, to ex- and to, 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 to hold fast to saying, whenever we attempt to be engaged in evangelism, we only will have accomplished evangelism when we have put this message out there. The gospel is the power of God. And anything else is not evangelism. And if the church is not aware of this, other things begin to intrude and lay claim to being authentic forms of evangelism that really are not. So, so to make unbelievers feel welcome at a service, to, to live intentionally towards unbelievers, to help your neighbors out, and to help your friends out who are unbelievers and show them that you have good, you know, how Christianity changes you. Um, to, be, to, be, to help the poor or to be involved in, in social issues and, and to let people know that it's your, it's, your, it's, your, it's your gospel framework that constrains you to be concerned for, you know, the, the plight of the unborn or to be concerned for um, minorities and, and racial disparity and, and, and to be... To, to be uh, concern for those who are economically oppressed, to, to pray for or with unbelievers, to be willing to, you know, you go to your neighbor every time, like, can I pray with you, can I pray with you, uh, to go to hospitals and pray with unbelievers, to build hospitals, to build schools, to help, uh, to, to help those who need education in this world, and so on and so All these wonderful things that Christians can be involved in, none of these things are evangelism. You can do every single one of those things and still not have evangelized. You must never forget that. Not even the conversion of souls is evangelism. Right? Not the conversion of souls is evangelism. J.I. Packer, the English author, passed away recently, um, brilliant, uh, one of the finest English theologians, surely, finest theologians probably of the last century, says in a, in a book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, it is our widespread and persistent, and, and he's speaking here about the, the reason why the church is often confused about evangelism. And he says, it is our widespread and persistent habit of defining evangelism in terms, not of a message delivered, but of an effect produced in our hearts. He says, is at the root of our confusion? That we, we define evangelism by the effect so evangelism is a big crusade and loads of people coming. That's not evangelism. So an altar call is not evangelism. That's not how the Bible, that's not how the Bible defines, define, the very word evangelism in the Bible that has roots of proclaiming good news is not speaking of the, even the effect that news has. You evangelize whether people are saved or not. We, we, we must judge the authenticity of our evangelism by the faithfulness of the message that is delivered. That's how we know if we're, we know if we're evangelizing if, we're, if our message is faithful, right? And in one sense, Paul will say then, what to, what to evangelize is, is to preach Christ. To preach Christ is evangelism. To proclaim him and all that he's accomplished. Again, whether there's, a, whether there's souls coming, whether people are saved or not, but to proclaim Christ to men is evangelism, right? Um, to preach the gospel, to proclaim uh, Femi Oshunui, a pastor in, in, in a church called City Church in, in Lagos, says that the incarnate, to, to proclaim that the incarnate, crucified, and risen Savior Jesus Christ is now Lord and impending judge of the world. To proclaim all that Christ is. The incarnate, crucified, risen Savior Jesus Christ is now Lord and impending judge of the world. To proclaim all that Christ is, that's evangelism. 
right? But, but of course, not just, not, not, not for the sake of intellectual amusement, right? Not, not so that we can just engage in some kind of abstract uh, study. You, you're, you're preaching this because you want souls, you want souls to be converted, right? So, so, so to evangelize is to, is, to, is to preach Christ while making men and women know that they need to make, that there needs to be a response, that you always respond to the message of Christ. Either you reject it or you accept it. So, so that means we, we preach Christ and we, we have to put the message in a, in a given context. Why is the gospel important? Why, why, is, why is the fact that Jesus Christ is, is incarnate, he's, he's died and he's risen, why is that important? Because of the relationship we bear with God. So you must set forth for all men and women that, listen, you, you have a relationship to your creator God, but you have sinned. And because of your sin, God is angry with you. God's judgment is upon you. In that sense, there's a lot to be said for uh, how, how Jonah's message appeals to the Ninevites because God tells Jonah to warn them of his impending judgment. We do that in the gospel. As a consequence of the fact that Christ is risen and that Christ alone saves from sin, those who reject him, bringing themselves under, under condemnation, bringing themselves under, uh, uh, under judgment. So we preach, we preach that. We preach God, we preach sin. We preach that Jesus Christ is the only way. He's the only one who can save you from your sin. And then we say, you need to respond, right? After, after, after Peter had set forth the, 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 the message of the gospel uh, to, some, to, to a few thousands in the book of Acts chapter 2, they, they ask him, what can we do to be saved? He sets forth, he says, listen, there has to be faith and repentance. That's what it is to preach the gospel. It's the message, to preach the message and make it clear to folks that that's what it is to evangelize, sorry, is to preach the message of the gospel and make it clear to folks, you need to respond to this. You, you don't evangelize if you tell someone, well, this is my belief. I believe that Jesus is, he died, he rose again. It's my beliefs. It's just my personal beliefs. Obviously, you have your own perspective of looking at life, and that's fine. You're not evangelizing when you do that. You're not evangelizing. That's not what it is to evangelize. To evangelize requires you to say, listen, there's no other name under heaven given to men, whereby you must be saved. You don't evangelize when you, you leave people feeling like Christ is just one of many other options. So you must preach Christ, preach him as the only way, and call men to respond in faith. It's the message, the faithfulness of the message is what defines if we are evangelizing. And the call for the church, the call for you and I, even as individual believers, is to Make sure that we, we know that message and that we're not ashamed to proclaim that message. And, 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 and to watch God move as we proclaim that message. And if we don't follow this method, if we don't follow this method, firstly, we dishonor the Lord, right? If we, if we try and go outside of boundaries he set for us, we dishonor the Lord. But also we make false converts. People come to Christianity for everything else apart from Christ. And imagine that person is self-deceived all the way to the grave, all the way to an eternity in hell. They're never truly free from their bondage to sin. Minds us of Simon the magician in, in, in the book of Acts, who, came to, who wanted to come to be a disciple because he saw that Christianity offered certain... He thought there was incentives. He, he thought there, was, uh, there, were, there were things he was interested in. Everything else besides Christ. The same way people come to church and they're interested in the church for everything else beside Jesus, the choir, the community. And you know, it's possible for people to go to church today and be in a church week in, week out. The pastor never quite breaks down the gospel to them. But before you know it, they become a part of the church. And they start to do things in the church. You know, let's say they become part of the media team of the church just because they're really good at computers. Guess what? You don't have to be saved to live stream a good service. You have to be computer savvy. I mean, we won't say people to do ours, but that's besides the point. You just have to be computer savvy. So now he's in the media team, and he's involved in doing all this, and he's live streaming, and when they sing, he sings along, but he's still in bondage to sin. And that person is heading to hell. And because church is never honing on the fact that what matters is this message, he never quite gets to hear it. He never quite gets to understand. 
His relationship to God and what truly saves. Not coming to church, that doesn't save you. Not being involved in service, that doesn't save you. Not liking the people in church, that doesn't save you. Not saying, I, I, I belong to this church. What church you go to? I go to this. That doesn't save you. The pastor knowing you doesn't save you. The pastor thinking you're saved doesn't save you. The pastor might be willing to do your, your naming ceremony. Well, let me start first. He might be willing to do your wedding, your naming ceremony, then your funeral. And he might be willing to say good things about you at all these things. And that doesn't save you. It's the message of the gospel. It's telling someone about Jesus that saves them. Pointing them to Jesus Christ. And not even knowing the gospel alone saves you. You might know about the cross. Most people, I guess, that go to church know that Christ died, he rose again. That's what Christians say. That doesn't save you. You must believe in the person who did that. You must trust him. You must say, these Christians always say, Jesus Christ died, he rose again. Now, I believe he did. And I've seen him. And he's now my friend. He's my savior. He's coming back for me. See how vital it is that we never allow that to slip through our fingers. We never start employing methods that will mean that the message is in the background. We start doing things as, as churches, as Christians. That means when we claim to evangelize, little or nothing is heard about the gospel. Maybe because we're ashamed or we're afraid to offend someone. We must hone in on the message. It's all that says. It's the message. Well, let me say the last thing. The last thing to say is that God's grace is at work. It's God's grace at work. So yes, God uses men. He gives us a message to deliver. But you know, if I can use this almost by way of comparison um, or illustration almost, you, you realize that Jonah's presence in these 10 verses in, sorry, these, yeah, 10 verses in chapter three spans only the first four. That's when we read of Jonah. God calls him, Jonah spreads a message. Now from verse five to the rest of the chapter, we see, if you want, this movement, this great conversion happen in Nineveh. There's humility, there's conviction. Folks are weeping and crying and praying, seeking God's mercy. But we don't see Jonah. Because Jonah cannot work up just a smidgen of grace. Jonah cannot convert anybody. He, can, he obeys his God, he spreads his message, but as far as what happens in the heart of people, Jonah must have no involvement. It wasn't Jonah that changed those people. The book of chapter 3 ends by showing us that it was God. They, they, they came to true repentance when God himself, to use the KJV, the KJV translation, repented. Not in the sense that God, was, God did anything wrong. That God, to demonstrate his glorious compassion, changed his mind about destroying these people. Because God's grace is so great that he, even for people that deserve justice, he can find compassion. That's what really saves men. The grace of God the point I'm saying there is we must be willing to go, we must proclaim that message, but then we must depend entirely on the grace of God. We must say this is all about God's grace. This is the beauty of what is often referred to as the doctrines of grace. Maybe more offensively, if you don't like the title, throw any title you want away. You don't like um, Calvinism, that's your business, throw it away. You don't like the title Tulip, I'm not, none of those titles are in the Bible. If you don't like it, that's good, that's fine. But don't throw away the truth that's there in those, in those ideas. Deep biblical um, truth that God gave to his church about the nature of grace as God teaches, as, as it's revealed in the scriptures. That's the beauty of that, what we call the doctrines of grace. Is it reminds us that apart from the grace of God, you know the first, the first T in the acronym TULIP that's used to, um, that's used to explain what was called the doctrines of grace. That first T says total depravity. It says men and women are absolutely incapable of truly loving God. It's not, it's not about how they were raised, what they've been through. Raised in religious homes or raised in irreligious homes. It, it, there's nothing to do with that. Sin makes us incapable of truly loving God. 
So if a man ever loved God and thousands and millions and billions have, it's because of his grace. His grace at work opens the eyes of the blind, allows dead sinners to see that he alone is the living God. These are things taking place in the heart that we have no involvement in. Our duty as servants is to do what we're bidden, to go and to speak, but then we wait on God to use our feeble efforts and save the souls of men and women. That's what happens in Nineveh. Jonah speaks. The Bible says he was speaking. There's this phrase in Jonah chapter, in Jonah chapter 3 that says, Nineveh is the size of a three-day journey. And the Bible says he'd only spoken for one day. So imagine if we read that as saying, for him to cover the whole city, it'd take him about three days of preaching. But he only starts to preach one day. And we never hear about the other two days. Why? Because the Ninevites beat him to, to his message. Jonah says, God's going to overthrow this city. The Ninevites hear, and they fear God. And they say, what if our hearts are overthrown rather than allow this city to be overthrown? What if there's an overturning that happens within rather than allow this city to be overturned? Maybe then we'll be saved. The king joins in, the great king of the nation. He joins in and says, he doesn't say, I'm going to demand grace from this God. He says, maybe God would be merciful. There's contrition. There's brokenness. God's grace is at work. Only God's grace can stop men and women being so occupied with themselves. We're so prideful. We love ourselves. We, we love this life. We think everything's about us. So aloof. So unaware, so careless in our sin. Only God's grace can show us. I'm telling you, nothing matters more than dealing with God. That's what the Ninevites said. Nothing matters more right now than dealing with God. Only God's grace can do that. And there are implications for that, if we understand that, if we appreciate that. That after all our efforts, we're depending on God's grace. One thing is, we will remember then that what true conversion looks like is to see the marks of grace. Friends, I know all too well how cheaply Christians treat the gospel. As though the gospel is something that we bought or we did. As though because we receive the message freely, we have the right to act as though it's cheap. Jesus Christ paid a cost that this whole world couldn't afford to save us from sin. The gospel is precious. And so, if someone has truly believed the message, there'll be marks, what, 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 what sometimes is, are called the marks of conversion. But today, you have churches willing to say that a Christian, a Christian who will not pray, will not confess Jesus Christ, will not seek holiness of living, doesn't love the church or God's people, living life or living a life with no submission to God and say, but, but maybe they're a Christian because they, they still come on Sunday, because they're interested in spirituality. God forbid. There's genuine marks of grace. And everywhere in the Bible, they're the same. One vital thing is there's a conviction of sin. There is a feeling that I've sinned, not just against self, but against God. It's not simply a feeling of brokenness. That's, that's, there's something there. It's not just an awareness of I'm broken. It's an awareness of I'm far from God and I need to be reconciled to him. And he has done no wrong, but I've done all the wrong and I need his grace. There's a conviction of sin. We must seek those, we'll see those marks where the gospel has been truly preached, where God's grace is at work. That's what grace does. Grace brings us low before it, ex it takes us high to Christ. Grace humbles us so that we can boast in Christ. Grace must do that. That's the, you must seek the marks of grace as churches. You must, be, you must remember that. Our duty is not to fill. We don't fill the church. Can you see? We're not the ones who add. Jonah didn't convert Nineveh. It's God who fills his church. But there should be great expectation. The wonder of this 
book here is, you have this reluctant preacher, you have this cold preacher perhaps, who preaches the sermon, and in spite of maybe a, a sermon not greatly delivered, there's revival like you've never seen. A city so wicked turns to God. Do we have great expectation when the message of the gospel is preached? Is it, is it, is it, is it shown in our prayerfulness? Is it shown in our audacity? I really believe that God saves souls. I'm ready to go this far. Sadly, it's not shown. But we, we should have great expectation that when God's message is proclaimed, who knows who God can save? From the least to the greatest, God can save them all. But also, we must never forget then that because conversion is a work of God's grace, the grace of God is available to all sinners. Jonah didn't know that. Jonah didn't appreciate that. He, he, he didn't want to preach to the Ninevites. They didn't deserve to be converted, he thought. But no, it's the magnificence of God's grace. It really is available to all kinds of sinners. The sinners you like and the sinners you don't like. It's available to them all. The sinners that you want to be saved, the sinners you don't want to be saved. God can save them. Never look at someone and say, this person is too far. Or, or I've, 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 I've shared the gospel with this person too many times, they're never going to be saved. Never do that. You don't know God's compassion for the sinner. You trust God, you pray, you wait on him. But you know, one of the reasons why this is very crucial is because this happening this way reminds us that we have nothing to claim for ourselves. Glory be to God alone. Solidea gloria. One of the reasons that this happens, why is God's grace alone that draws, is so that we cannot claim any praise for ourselves. So that we can say this is a work of God alone. Glory to God alone. Praise be to God alone. And brothers and sisters, that what that means is we, we, we're very careful. not to, God doesn't need us. Don't intrude on his work. You can't force someone to come to the Lord. You, you don't deceive people to come to Christ. Don't change the message to try and make them come to Christ. Because nothing you do can, can, can change your soul. Trust in the Lord. You proclaim and you trust him. And all glory is given to him. Every genuine work, every authentic work of grace has that to it. It's only God who could have done that. In fact, when all Christians consider their conversion, when all Christians consider how we came to, I promise you, when we all consider how we came to God, we're all Calvinists. You never see an old Christian say, I really want to say, I really did well, I did my, no. Every Christian has, it doesn't matter, even if, a, even if you've been raised in a Christian home, if you were born in a home, a Christian home, and you were raised to read the Bible from young, and you say, I guarantee you that when you truly come to Christ, this is true for Christians who don't even know when that happened. I've met Christians who say, I don't even know when I got converted. I just know that now I'm following Jesus and I trust him and I'm walking with him. And I guarantee you, even those Christians say, but to God be the glory alone. I never did a thing to walk with him because we know all too well that apart from his grace, we'd be in love of our sin and running headlong after it. God's grace is how men and women come into the kingdom. But let me just close by saying then, that Jesus Christ speaking to the Pharisees in the book of Matthew in chapter 12 speaks about the sign of Jonah, the sign of Jonah. Um, they, they, they say to Jesus Christ, give us, give us a sign. Show us that you're the true savior. Show us that you're real. Show us that you're the one. Do a miracle and we'll believe you. And Christ sees through them. There's no love. There's no, they don't want to know the Lord. There's no genuine, they, they, they're not being honest, they're not being genuine. And Christ says, no, no, no. The sign you'll be given is a sign of Jonah and says Jonah's being in the, in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights will be, a, a, will be comparative, will be a reminder of how Jesus Christ is going to die and rise again and says that the people, the men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment for these Pharisees. Basically, Christ, is, Christ says to them, they, they, they changed when they heard the preaching of Jonah. And now you're hearing me before you and you won't change. And I say this to you again. If you're someone who's sitting there saying, well, I would have believed, but there has to be more to it than this. I would believe, but God should send me an angel. I'd believe, but God should send me a dream. And sorry, the church gets involved in this as well. Very often, 
Churches put on podiums folks who have the most dramatic stories to tell about how they came to God. We can't wait to put someone there who says, oh, the way I came to God is I dreamt and Jesus came to me at night. Those are the ones we should be more skeptical about. Because the, the way that God has designed and shown that would be at least the normative way of how he's going to convert people is this simple message of the gospel. And I want to say to you this morning, we have nothing else to give to you. God has nothing else to give to you. But the testimony of his word, testimony of his word, that his son, Jesus, who is fully God, has come into the world. And he died and he rose again. And this, all this happened because God wants to save sinners. And God is saying, pay attention to this message and realize that it's not trying to itch your ear. Pay attention to this message. It doesn't pat you on the back. Pay attention to this message. It strips you of all your worth, as it were, all your good, any intrinsic worth you think you have, and tells you you have to find your worth in God alone. And just say to me, does that not ring true? Are you not a sinner? Are we not all sinful? In the end, are we not all dying away? Do we not all need God's grace and God's mercy? How can you deny the authenticity of a message that has been crowned with the reality of God's Son coming into the world, dying and rising again, and he's coming back. There's no greater sign than the message of the gospel that testifies to Jesus Christ. Believe the message today. Believe it and be saved. Amen.